podcast we have conversations with people who've been fucked up by their faith and we explore how they found hope, healing, reconciliation and forgiveness in or out of their faith tradition. My guest today is Dave Tomlinson. I'm so happy to have Dave on the podcast. He's one of my favourite Christians as I've just told him. Uh, Dave is an Anglican priest, um, now retired from Uh, parish ministry but still very active I see him most weeks on his uh, broadcast which is on Facebook and YouTube of the Holy Shed the the smallest parish in Christendom is that how what you describe it that's correct yeah so I'm still a parish I'm still a parish priest you see but it's yes it's it's a very tiny parish it's a very tight well it's a a big parish when you think about the number of people that probably tune in yeah also a writer of books like The Bad Christian and The Bad Christian's Manifesto and <clears> also <throat> appears regularly um, on in Soul Space at St Ethelberger's Centre for Peace and Reconciliation which if you've never tuned in I highly recommend. Thank you for being here Dave, it's really good to it see you. It is my great pleasure, yeah. great pleasure you. I love, and I love the title of your podcast by the way. <laughs> Thank you, I'm <laughs> glad you do, I'm glad you do. I'm going to start with a poem because I always start with a poem. Now, one thing that I know about you because I follow you on the social media is that you love birds. This is true. Yes. And you often post lovely photographs that you've taken of birds. And I was thinking, hmm, poetry about birds. And and then I thought one of my favourite poems, um, which at least features the concept of a bird, is Emily Dickinson's Hope is the thing with feathers. Mm. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea. Yet, never, in extremity, it asked a crumb of me. Beautiful. Mm. Very beautiful. I love Emily Dickinson. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I I love, I mean, poetry was was not something I grew up with, really. I mean, I grew up in a secondary modern school in Liverpool where I learned to play football and not much else yes and um and you know poetry was a kind of very sissy kind of thing really and it's just amazing as years have gone by how really important it has become to me now and yes. uh, how much I think it can speak truth in a way that you know straightforward factual things can't do because I think it it engages the whole person you know your emotions uh, exactly. as well as your mind exactly exactly mm. so dave how have you been fucked up by your faith <laughs> well you know <laughs> excuse me i grew up in uh in a very fundamentalist background um you know uh, my parents were brethren christians um yeah. and if 
you know, anyone who knows anything about the Brethren knows that it's, it's very, very centered on the Bible and on a very literal and kind of, you know, the Bible has no errors sort of uh, outlook. And, and that's what I grew up with. Um, really, you know, none of that in, in one level actually engaged me at all as a young person. And I, and I, and I left when I was 17. Um, but I think that the legacy of, of that has continued and from time to time has been a source of, of fucking me up. Uh, because it took quite a lot to outgrow it. You know, there's that thing about the Pope, isn't there? Give me a child until it's seven, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Th there's something about those early years, even though you're not consciously taking it all in. Um, I think it was particularly a sort of a fear, really, a fear of God, a fear of putting a foot wrong. Yes. And um, I remember as a, as a young child, sometimes going into my parents' bedroom in the middle of the night to see if they were still there because, you know, I had this idea plugged into me, you know, that, that um, one day Jesus would return and, and the true Christians would be taken and the others would be left. And that fear that I would be, you know, left behind <laughs> stayed with me. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, that said, you know, I... I I found ways as the years went by to uh, to 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 look beyond all of that, and I think you know then for certainly for the last thirty years at least, the focus of my life has very much been on people who have been fucked up by religion, and um, you know whether that has been through through writing or through talks um, or through meeting people because I have had almost a non-stop stream of people who've wanted to come see me over decades now. Um, often, often clergy, actually. Um, there's a lot of clergy fucked up by faith. Yes. And um, many of them have come really like Nicodemus, you know, under the, the, the darkness of anonymity mm. um, to come and have a conversation. They want to take me out for, you know, for a pub meal or a drink or a walk on the park to have a conversation that they feel they can't have anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And as I say, many have been clergy, but lots of other people too along the line, along the way. So um, I think I think that probably at a more personal level, a more emotional level, what, what has fucked me up at times has been the way in which people that I believed were lifelong friends mm. suddenly disappeared when I took a sideways move, you know, I went in a different direction and somehow I was no longer part of that particular club. And I have had a long journey now, you know, I've lived on this earth quite a while and, um, and it has been a journey through various sort of chapters of faith. And um, looking back, I can see a sort of, I can see a line of progress through it. Yes. But along the way at each of those times, it was a case of passing through traumas really of needing to, stand up against um as a leading figure mostly mm -hmm. but, but you know that can be even harder still really because you know people look to you to be someone who is well I think for me it's often been the sense that people look to me to be someone who who will steady the ship and and I've really rather rocked the boat instead you know <laughs> and um and to and to suddenly find that because you are 
as far as you are concerned, as far as I'm concerned, you know, being true and faithful to what I believe, trying to be true to myself and true to what I think is right, um, that that can be so badly interpreted as, as you know, betraying uh, a, a, a sort of mutual trust that existed, mm-hmm. uh, that we are part of this. And as I say, then suddenly finding that you've lost front friends who you thought were friends for life. And that, that you know, that has definitely been a hurtful part of mm-hmm. my journey. It's a, it's a sadly not <clears throat> uncommon story that that stepping out of line <laughs> in some way all, uh, means stepping out altogether or, or being forced to step out altogether. And that can be hugely traumatic because you're you're losing everything in all in one fell swoop. Community, friends, support, social networks, faith. Everything. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Yes, and I th- I think that um, I mean pro- probably one of the the big sort of moments for me and and my wife Pat was you know for twenty odd years I was a leader in what's known as the house church movement. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know I was you know sort of recognised as an apostle in that world you know which meant that I I led a team of uh, you know, when I finished, I was leading a team of about 15 people working full time with me. And I was with that team responsible for about 60 churches of varying sizes across the country, but also with links overseas as well. And um, but but there came a point where the sort of inner journey of questioning and doubting and rethinking things came to a point where I had to move on from that. Mm-hmm. And that was around about the end of the 1980s. And it was sort of career suicide, really, you know, because we were sort of financially secure. You know, I had status and work and all those things and really no idea where the future lay, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and so it was that. But, but there was that sense of sufficient kind of inner claustrophobia that you feel I can't live in this any longer. And um uh, and you know, so it's a, it's a it's a step into the darkness, and I think one of the problems with you know certainly evangelical faith, but but you know any sort of faith that has got that sense of absolute certainty about it, you know this yeah. this only is the truth, is that when it comes to you know needing to move on from that, um, you just feel as if there's nowhere else to go because yeah. you've never considered that there's another way. You know, this mm-hmm. this this is what being a Christian means. And um, when in 1995, I published my first book, which was called The Post-Evangelical. Yes. Which was sort of, you know, summarising, I suppose, where I'd got up to on this journey and aware of the fact that there were lots of people who were, you know, in many cases, feeling not just that they needed to leave their church, but that it was it was leaving behind the faith because, and that was what came out again and again from people. And I was absolutely deluged with letters. It was just before emails then, but I was deluged with letters from people from across the country and around the world who were basically saying, "At last, someone has said this." Yes, and I, and I just suddenly felt as if. I'd suddenly opened a lid on this great sort of silence that people lived in of, 
you know, having all these doubts and questions and feeling unhappy, or maybe even having jumped ship, but but not being able to resolve um, that sense that you know uh, perhaps perhaps they were all alone, you know, and yes. and uh, and so that you know, I think that's the great thing about you know writing or speaking out is that it it empowers other people, it, it makes them feel, it legitimizes their experiences, yes. and so. From from that time onwards, basically, I've I've just had uh, you know that steady stream of messages and you know emails from people and so on, uh, who most most of whom want to tell me quite a long story, <laughs> you know, including <laughs> <could> me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, of their experiences and um, you know in some cases there's just such deep hurt under there people have truly been yeah. fucked up here and I think that a lot of that comes from <clears throat> having in you know voluntarily or involuntarily bought into an ideology that's how I see it mm-hmm. um, an ideological kind of system that that says this is the truth and um and you know stepping away from that uh can cause also and I, I've so many people have told me that you know they've needed to go into therapy I think mm-hmm. probably the evangelical movement has has given a lot of therapists quite a lot of work actually yes yes <laughs> and and of course that that has become a whole movement in itself hasn't it the sort of idea of deconstruction that we hear about quite a lot yeah. now from yeah, um, absolutely yeah I've spoken to a few people who are in that you know in that or recovering from that that process um you do hear a lot of stories and and you're clearly really interested in stories um you know in your books you t- you tell your story also through the stories of other people um and the mm. people that you encounter and and one of the things i was really struck with was the ways in which the way in which you sort of have created church um for want of a better word in the places where people are and of course at the moment the place where people are is often on the internet and so that's what you're doing with the mm. holy shed the holy shed every week but you also at one point were meeting people in pubs a, 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 a powerful way to meet people where they are um and also to appear not just to appear but to be accessible and real yeah that's right i mean i think it was ra- roundabout the, the end of the 80s and early 90s when um we were sort of feeling a bit lost and needing to sort of find our bearings mm. and there was a sort of you know there was a group of people around us in in a similar position um little did we know how many many more there were yeah. and um and so uh, you know creating this little gathering which initially was was actually in our front room Mm-hmm. Uh, and then went into a cellar in some offices that we had in Brixton, uh, where we did some little gigs as well, really, little acoustic nights and comedy nights and things. And But what, what came out was that people were enjoying all of that, but what they really wanted was somewhere to try to uh, offload and to uh, assess what it was that, that they were feeling in terms of their disaffection and hurt from their experiences of, of, of the faith journey. And um, 
So quite quickly that grew and, and people said, uh, when we outgrew our places, you know, that, that a pub was where they'd like to be. And so we 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 went to uh, quite a number of pubs in South London yeah. uh, holding these, these groups, which were all called Holy Joes. That was a name that just kind of emerged. Um, and over a 10-year period that we did that, um, there was, I would say, undoubtedly into, into thousands of people who passed through Holy Joe's. Mm -hmm. Many, you know, no more than 50 on a given night, because that was as many as the room would hold. But, um, you know, just so many people came. For lots of people, it was a stopping off place for a short while. Um, but it was a completely safe place where no one was going to tell you the right answer at the end of the evening. Mm -hmm. You know, it was genuine sort of um, genuinely open forum. And I learned, you know, a whole fresh sort of leadership in that it was to hold the space yes. and facilitate something rather than sort of be directing it. And um, sometimes it got quite sort of difficult holding it because there were there was a lot of high emotions, you know, and mm -hmm. people you know, some people would get really mad and others would be crying. And sometimes I'd tell people to go to the bar and get another drink and calm down for a bit, you know. Um, but it was a life-saving space for a lot of people. And for some people, it was a way to find a route back into faith and church. Yes. Um, for some, you know, it was the end. But I, I would say for the vast majority of people, it became a positive stepping stone. Um, not least because they felt legitimised and, and a sense of self-confidence. And a huge part of, you know, the audience that developed over the years of that uh, were people from the LGBT community because um, that was a sort of strata, I suppose, a demographic of, of people who... Um, had particularly struggled with, and, and had very, very painful experiences. Mm -hmm. And being able to come to somewhere where they could, you know, cry and laugh and reassess things was was very, very important. Yes. Yeah. And to remember or to be reminded <clears throat> that God is for them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, and that was, you know, that was really at the end of the day what it was about. It wasn't about trying to, as I say, answer everybody's questions. I mean, I, I, I suppose I was the main resource of bringing in yeah. different kind of theological perspectives that yes. maybe hadn't been considered before. But overwhelmingly, it was about creating, yeah, this this safe place, um, you know, where they could kind of, you know, catch breath and. And 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 go away feeling affirmed in who they were as people. Really, mm -hmm. it seems a sad thing, doesn't it? That 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 you know, a faith which centres and focuses on grace, yes. on a God of grace and love, um, ends up creating so much damage and so much hurt in people. Oh yes, um, you know, and 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 the God, God as God, really be becomes a sort of a source of that really because um you know on the one hand you've got all this language of grace and love and so on but on the other hand you've got this reality that that people feel deeply judged and disapproved of by god yes um 
through the attitudes of of people who are, who are supposedly, you know, kind of bringing the good news to them. Yeah. You said last night on the holy shed, your God is too small. If this is, mm. this is if this is the way you're you're defining God, your God is too small. Mm. And that that really spoke to me. Certainly, that's yeah. the ways in which another friend of mine says, you know, it's trying to put trying to put God in a box, you know. Um, that we try to shape God into a judgmental God. Mm -hmm. We try to shape God into what we are, the worst parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. mm. Absolutely. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, when people tell me their stories as they have over, over decades, really, um, on the one level, you think, how on earth could you possibly believe in this sort of God? You know, how could you go down this road? But of course, it's not as simple as that, is it? I mean, we're groomed into it, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it with, through a lot of different means, really. And it's all so coercive. And, you know, it, it, for, from an outsider point of view, someone looks in and says, oh, don't be so stupid, you know, just 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 walk away from that, you know. But when when that's the the life that you've lived it's it's really and it is and it is a form of brainwashing actually mm. you know not in the intense way that you've got in you know that we normally think of that but but actually in a sort of quite consistent and powerful way it is a form of brainwashing you know through week after week after week after week of sitting in churches and listening to sermons uh you know being immersed in the whole kind of sort of spirituality of it you know the hymns and the prayers and the, and the whole thing all conspires together and you know I mean the the thing about brainwashing is I think it's about getting you into this bubble in which you believe that 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 the internal the internal sort of existence of that bubble is the world that is the true world um and the, the outside you know is is somewhere alien altogether mm. and I think that you know, as I say, in classic brainwashing, you remove someone from their physical environment and put them into this strange environment. Uh, and uh, uh, but actually, it's just as powerful when it's done um, week after week after week in the way that it, that it does happen in in a lot of churches. Mm. Mm. But I think it's you know, the, to me. It, it is a small-minded, niggardly, awful God that people end up being locked into that bubble with, yes. you know, who turns out really to be nothing short of a monster. Um, and this is nothing to do with the God that I see, the God of Jesus Christ, the God, you know, who is the God of the whole world, of uh, you know, who is um, the joyful beauty and goodness of everything in creation, um there's no there's no kind of correlation between the two i think no we create we create god in our image <laughs> rather than the other way yeah. around <laughs> absolutely i was right. i was kind of, kind of talking about it was preaching yesterday and the gospel was the was jesus cleansing the 10 lepers mm. and in the translation that that we use in the church it's he says go on your way your faith has made you well 
And so I was talking about how that kind of way of thinking about wellness and health can lead some people to believe that that if they become ill, it's because God has let them down. God, you know, God has made this happen or because they mm. didn't have enough faith mm. or they didn't pray hard enough. But actually, you know, all you have to do is look at another translation of the Bible to, to have a, an entirely different take on it. If you were in right. a Roman, if you were in a Roman Catholic church yesterday, it would say, "Your faith has saved you," and that's completely that's different. It's hey, completely yeah, absolutely. Different. Yeah. So, absolutely. so it's it's partly a little bit of knowledge, isn't it? It's empowering people to really properly understand what they're hearing and reading, and mm. some sometimes that's kept away from people, isn't it? Absolutely, and you know, it's I think it's about people encouraging people to just use their common sense yeah you know uh but but that's that's so often you know that ends up being switched off that you know critical element of of common sense Mm -hmm. and uh, and gets switched off on the basis that that faith means that you don't listen to all those things you just trust yourself to this word, you know, mm. and um, and that's something which you know because it puzzled me for a long time why there were people <clears throat> who um, probably in the rest of their life uh, were very intelligent, critical thinking people, you know, people mm-hmm. with with university educations or whatever, and who work in professions that require them to to think critically, to analyze, and yet when they step over that sort of border as it were into the realm of church and faith that gets switched off and suddenly they you know buy into in a very uncritical way things which actually in the real world are quite damaging and harmful to them Um, I sometimes wonder if I don't know because I'm I because I am the kind of person that that wants to un- you know pick up the, the rug and look underneath it you know and and, and look at the Greek right. the Greek translation of the Bible and figure out what's actually being said. So, but I do wonder if if that lack if that lack of critical thinking, particularly with scripture, um, <laughs> is an excuse to hold on to prejudice. It's like God said it, it's all right for me to be homophobic or racist or bigoted or whatever, or or think that women shouldn't be preaching or whatever nonsense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People still... Well, I think, I think there's a sort of psychological collusion between the two, you know. Yes. I think, yes, people often do bring their own prejudices into... Uh, into into that interaction with the Bible or what's being taught or whatever, yeah. and and so that's what they read into it. And at other times, it's the other way around. You know that something mm-hmm. is is spoken into people um, to turn them away from perhaps what otherwise they 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 may have a more generous outlook on yes. life or whatever. So I think there is a collusion between the two things. And um, <clears throat> it's, uh, but the outcome, I think, is something quite ugly, really. Um, and, and when I look at, I mean, I, I mentioned in the Holy Shed last night that I, our daughter has recently got us into watching Queer Eye, which yes. uh, the TV series, which we have, we, we just, I've heard about it and 
but just never bothered watching it really. But she's very good at force feeding us things that she's into. Um, when we go to visit, you know, that's what we're going to watch. And um, so we watched about three episodes um, last week. And the thing that really knocked me out really was, you know, here are these five very flamboyant, quite outrageous kind of, you know, gay men mm-hmm. um, who are, I think, doing the work of Christ Absolutely. in the most astonishing way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yes, on the le- on one level, you know, they give people a sort of makeover in their style and their appearance or their environment or whatever. But at a much deeper level, it's transforming people's inner perceptions of themselves and of the world around um, in a really, really powerful way. And I, and I think there's something so stunningly beautiful about that mm. by comparison with the way in which the church, I think, has so often really screwed people up and, you know, made them unhappy with themselves, uneasy with them, with, with who they are. And, um, yeah, just 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 gone in the opposite direction altogether. You know, I think that the whole thing about the gospel being something about liberation, about wellness, as you say, um, so so why is it that so many people buying into into faith end up being so screwed up really um it's it's a very sad state of affairs isn't it the fear plays such a huge part in it i think you know i i think that and and i don't think it's necessarily you know church leaders and people set out to create an environment of fear i think it's because it's something they're part of too, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, and sometimes you know it's it's done in in good from good motivation, but the outcome is catastrophic. I think that to create this atmosphere of fear, where if you feel if you sort of put a, a foot slightly this way or that way, you know, it's like walking this awful tightrope, and um, and all the times this threat that if you don't keep completely down this line then you're going to tumble down, you know, into into sort of darkness somewhere down there, maybe even hell. And, um, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's an awful, awful state of affairs, I think. So here, here's the question then, Dave. <laughs> Why, <laughs> even despite all of that, right, you, beca- you became a Church of England priest. And... Yes. And... And kind of and stayed the course, didn't you? You stayed in the church. You're still in the church. You're, and, um, you know, I I relate to it very strongly. But other people would ask you, you know, like if you feel so fiercely about this, why are you still there? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I get asked that all the time. Yeah, you know, when yeah. I, I go around, you know, talking about my books and things, you know, and um, and people who really sort of buy into what I'm saying, say, but how can you, you know, mm-hmm. um, how can you be a, how can you be a vicar? How can you be part of that system? I mean, the funny thing is, you know, having having walked the path I did from, you know, the brethren where I where I grew up through the house church movement, which um, on the one hand sort of did offer a much more spacious place and was certainly something that I was was liberated by from from coming out of the brethren i think that you know the charismatic movement brought me i would say my 
first spiritual experience, mm-hmm. you know, and there's something very, very powerful about that. But but underneath of it all, it was all undergirded by the same kind of quite fundamentalist theology and view of the Bible, which in the end I, I couldn't I couldn't live with. Um, and the, the strange thing is that, you know, so, so when I came to the end of that, I, the thought, if you'd said, you know, the future lies in the Church of England, I'd have thought you were completely off your rocker, you know. But um, the strange thing is that I actually found greater freedom to be me working in the Church of England. Um, I suppose the one thing that always did slightly attract me to it was that it wasn't this tightrope. That, that the Church of England, you know, was this big umbrella, yeah. um, this poor church with, with people of such wild extremes that sort of identified as part of that strange dysfunctional family. And so I guess I did think, you know, probably I could find my place somewhere in that huge spectrum, mm-hmm. which is true that I did. And um, I, I think, you know, perhaps more than anything, what the Church of England gave to me when I when I became a vicar, you know, a parish priest is gave me the most unbelievable inroad to people's lives outside of the church. And that's the strange thing. I think it, it, it won't last forever, I think. But by virtue of being the, the institutional church, uh, the default church, really, of, an, of a nation um, and being constantly in the position of you know, taking people's funerals, marrying them, being involved with their families. Um, I, I just, I would never believe what an amazing opportunity that gave me to be involved with people's lives. Yeah. And um, of all that, of all that I have experienced in the church, bring that's probably the most sort of, um, you know, welcome part of of the whole deal to me, actually. Yeah. Um, and when I wrote How to Be a Bad Christian, um, it was very much out of that experience, really, you know, because um, uh, I don't know if you know, but but the title I kind of ripped off from another book called How to Be a Bad Birdwatcher <laughs> <Yes. laughs> uh, by Simon Barnes. Um, uh, and as you say, me being a birder, you know, I kind of relished that book. But I very quickly thought that his whole methodology, because what he's doing is he's sort of um, taking bird watching out of the realm of geeks and twitchers and people with expensive equipment and saying birds are part of everybody's life. Yeah. So you look out of a window, you see a bird, you enjoy. Congratulations. You are a bird watcher. Yeah. And when I read this, I thought, oh, my goodness, that is exactly what I think about God. And it came from all these people that I was meeting constantly through my work as a, in a parish rather than the, among the congregation as such, mm-hmm. you know, where people would say constantly, they would say, I'm, I'm afraid I don't, you know, come to church very often, by which they meant never really. Yeah. And, um, and I would, you know, continually say to people, you know, I don't think God cares whether you go to church or not. Mm-hmm. I do. I'm a vicar. I'd love you to come. But if I thought that God was someone who categorized people in that wretchedly crude way, you know, as Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers, then I would be an atheist instantly because that God has considerably less intelligence than me. So that's not very good. 
And um, so, so, I, so I wrote. So the idea of a bad Christian, you know, was is is like the bad bird watcher, where he's saying it doesn't really matter whether you know that that's the goldfinch or a greenfinch for you to enjoy it. And it just seemed to me that God has to be part of everybody's life in some shape or form, part of somebody everybody's experience, or that God is too small. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so. I think that probably the Church of England did help to open up that vista for me. Yes. Now, when when the Bishop of London, as was at the time, Richard Charters, who was the one that I went to talk to about whether I you know, might have a future in the Church of England. And he checked me out carefully. And, uh, and then when I went to see him after he checked me out, he said, um, he said, Dave, you're going to find the Church of England very frustrating. And you will be critical of many things. And I believe the church will benefit from your criticism, mm. which was an amazingly generous that, thing to say. Yes, yes. And of course, he was dead right. That, I mean, to this day, and maybe even more as time goes on, I'm so frustrated with the Church of England about so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I can't deny that it gave me a space to operate in. Yes. It gave me a platform to operate from. And yes, it gave, it did give me a sort of credibility in some people's eyes, which has been which has proven useful, um, and especially with people, strange enough, who don't go to church, who somehow, you know, they 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 know kind of who you are, you know. Yeah. So I mean, over the years, I made it my practice often to write my sermons in the pub, you know. So I would go and and spend an afternoon sitting in the pub or whatever, you know, and. Almost invariably, someone would come and buy you a drink, which is a, which is at least one good point. <laughs> but very often, also because I'd be sitting there with a the dog collar on, so people knew that, you know. And and it's funny, but I've I've never found having a dog collar useful in the church, but I have found it useful outside. Outside, yeah, yeah. And um, and I'd have people often come up to me while I was there in the pub, essentially to want to make kind of ad hoc. Co- uh, confessions you know to me mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to tell me their secrets uh, or to ask for my help in some way or to say a prayer for them or something and um, so my my experience has been that with all the kind of dreadfully downsides about the Church of England the institution of church it, it it's it's an it's a kind of paradoxical thing you know it gave me opportunities um to connect with people outside of the church that the you know i mean inside i I was blessed to be the vicar of a fantastic community of people who were almost entirely people with with you know non-christian backgrounds who you know you know i'm not an evangelist i don't i don't really like that word very much at all but i think that people are much more open than you can sometimes be led to believe. And I think mm-hmm. when they sense that there's humanity here, yes. um, then the natural spiritual hungers and aspirations that I think everybody has sort of find some way to come out and to find expression. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole messy sort of world, but it is a world that has served me, I think, reasonably well over the years. Mm-hmm. And and you it clearly, there's a there, there is 
there's some there's a, definitely a strength in in the legitimacy of which you um you know that you're speaking about that people see that you have well, some kind of, yeah and yeah. But you you've used that in a way which is prophetic you know in the best sense of the word i think to you know, speak truth yeah. to power to you know to open up the the potential of ministry to people that wouldn't necessarily have access to it um, and obviously as well as that it, it it gives me uh the opportunity and the and the kind of platform to to voice my criticisms of the church from inside you know yeah and you know i've not been i've not been slow to do that and it hasn't always got me into good places to be honest um but but i think that that's part of the deal too you know do you know do i have hope that the church is going to sort of change and become something that no not an awful lot really but meanwhile there's a lot of precious people around who um you know i i would like to try and make life a little bit better for um inside inside of the church so yeah i mean i think you know people say to me do you, do you think the church will be around in you know 50 years or 100 years time well I, I i don't have a crystal ball but i think if you look at all the kind of trajectories it's not looking good you know for the church i think that um i i think that probably as time goes on a hell of a lot of the Church of England is going to die of old age. Yeah. That's that's a fact. I mean, yeah. especially in you know, in rural parishes and so on. I mean, they are just. I I so feel for clergy who try to sort of keep so many plates spinning. You know, with umpteen parishes, with you know, in some cases half a dozen people in them. Um, it's it's dying of old age. But I, I so I, I think there will be those sort of fortresses of black and white sort of evangelicalism and the like that will, you know, probably sort of, you know, still be around. Um, but I think more and more that's something that in in the wider world is actually at the very edges of society. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the more important question to me is, you know, does the kingdom of God, the thing that Jesus was passionate about, have a future? absolutely yes mm. and i think that the interesting and challenging thing in the future is to see how you know a different kind different kinds of communities can emerge that can nurture that vision and uh, and be sort of agencies of it in in the wider society yeah. mm. thank you that seems like a good place to pause <laughs> <laughs> now one of one of the things that i ask my guests to do is to share a, a blessing or a prayer or a, or a poem do you have something to share there well i think the the blessing which i've used a bit of in the holy shed which i used last night actually is mm. probably quite a good one really yeah which uh which says this god help me to be charitable toward those who hold different views to me trying to find our common humanity. God help me to be true to my convictions, regardless of their popularity or disapproval, yet always open to change my mind. God help me to learn that being kind and loving is the highest expression of faith in any tradition, that actions always speak louder than words. Amen. Amen.
Dave, thank you so much. No, it's a great pleasure, Jude. And uh, I think it's I think it's great what you're doing. As I think that, you know, we we need more and more spaces and forums where people can be honest and authentic mm. and know that there are others going through the same experiences. Because I think it, it all suffering is made worse through isolation. Yes. And I think when you feel as many people do in the realm of faith that you know their own inner conflicts and sufferings uh at the hands of, of that faith are, are just something that they're going through and they're there's something wrong with them you know yes. and so they, so they have the added feeling of guilt on top of all the rest of it uh, it's very 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 isolating and and so i think that any way that we can open that take a lid off that and just show that that actually there are lots and lots. And sometimes, you know, I wonder if there aren't huge numbers of people because yeah. that's the impression I sometimes get, you know, from people. And if I just tell you one little story, I mean, there's, there's a, a vicar of uh, of a very large, and I'm talking about over a thousand people, evangelical church, who who contacted me and uh, because he wanted to have one of those Nicodemus conversations. And... Um, and he's holding together this sort of very happy, clappy, big, successful-looking kind of community of people. Mm -hmm. uh, but within himself, you know, he's carrying all sorts of, of doubts and questions and compromises, and, and really the whole thing is just unraveling, yes. you know. And yet, and yet he's got this painful situation of, of dealing with that and at the same time keeping everything else going, you know. And the interesting thing is that... Um, you know, he, he told me recently that he's, he's, he's suddenly found that by giving some indication through his public ministry, not, not being completely out about it, but by giving indications of somebody he's going through, that he's suddenly found so many people in the church are coming and, I, and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. you know, I, and I think that's the thing. I think there can be a sort of emperor with no clothes on thing going yes. on. You know, so many people, I think, uh, are feeling in a very similar way, but it's the truth that can't be spoken because they feel if they do speak it, then they will be, you know, seen to be, uh, you know, betrayers or backsliders or whatever. Heretics. Heretics, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And the great thing about heretic, you know, as I've written in one of my books is, you know, the word heretic actually means uh, someone with an opinion, you know, heresy mm -hmm. is, is an opinion. Yep. And, uh, I think actually we should all have opinions and we should be encouraged to have opinions. Yes. So if that's what heresy is, then I think bring it on, I say. Amen to that. You've been listening to Fucked Up by Faith with me, Jude Mills. Our music is by David Goodall and you can find the podcast on Spotify and all major podcast channels. If you would like to take part in the podcast or you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please do get in touch. You can do that via my website, judemills.com forward slash podcast and I look forward to hearing from you. Go well.